Okay, if you have not grabbed the handouts, uh, they are on the back table. I would encourage you to grab them. For those of you who were here last week, I think you will remember they are incredibly helpful because we do move a little fast and it does have everything you'll need right in front of you. For those of you who are following along on the digital copy that I emailed out, we'll be starting on page 16. So if you want to go ahead and start swiping there. Reminder that every week I will be sending the same, it'll be the same name of the document, but I'll be sending the new block that we're on. So uh, like I said, I last checked, last week I told you it was 192 pages. Since then, there's been some retooling. It is now 197 pages. I promise you, I made a deal with myself. We're not breaking 200. Um, that means the font may get smaller, but we're not breaking 200. Page 16 is where we're going to start. Uh, no, I just... Well, that... Someone's read ahead in the notes. Let's go. Um, no, I... So here's how this happened. I showed my dad what I was going to do. And I always send out my curriculum ahead of time to the people I'll be giving it to, so like the parents and the teens, or to, in this case, like the elders and my parents. And uh, my dad looked over it, and he's like, I am not reading a book. He's like, give me the spark notes. I was like, fine. So I took it, and I condensed it down to like 38 pages, and he goes, no, the spark notes of the spark notes. <laughs> and so he thought 200 pages would be a little overkill. He's right, mind you. There's two appendixes. Who puts an appendix in a Bible class? I had way too much fun with this. We got to focus. So last week. Last week we started with the first idol that stops us from being able to read the Bible effectively. This whole class series, if this is your first time joining us, is how to get the most out of your Bible reading. But before we can start building healthy principles, I wanted us to be careful that we're not coming into our study with some negative ones. We used Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man, as kind of the model to pull these three truths from. The first of the three idols that we talked about was the idol of Scripture. It's a weird one to say, but when you break it down, the Bible is very clear on how it's supposed to be used. Through a variety of passages, through a variety of times, we spent going through the past, looking at the way God wanted us to use Scripture, but how far too frequently we use it the wrong way. Culminating with me presenting the idea that if we find ourselves using Scripture as a form of arguing, if we're only going to the Bible to win a fight, if we're using the, the, the Scriptures as our form of relationship with God, we've actually missed the point of what the Bible's supposed to be. One of the biggest weaknesses we have is mistaking the lowercase w words of God, the Bible, with the capital W word of God in Christ. Our relationship, our focus, our center is entirely to be built upon the foundation of Jesus because the weight of our identity is too heavy for the Bible to carry. That's where we ended last week. This week, I think we're going to finish this block, move on to the next one, by going through the next two idols. This one as well, I will be asking a couple of questions. 
I want to warn you, though, that these questions are not going to be like questions we hit later on. These questions are going to be highly introspective and vulnerable. Meaning, there may be a couple of times I ask a question, and we're all thinking of answers, but none of us feel comfortable sharing them. That's okay. Super comfortable in silence. So if I ask a question tonight, and it probes your brain, and you feel comfortable sharing what you think, feel free to. If you're not comfortable doing that, we'll sit silent for a couple of seconds, then we'll move right along like nothing happened. But I do want us to consider these thoughts. I also want to preface this just with a little disclaimer. There are going to be times tonight where I say something that you're not going to agree with at first, or you're going to be uncomfortable with at first. And at the end, you still may disagree with me. You still may look at it like I'm crazy. But follow the logic all the way through before we get there. For those of you who have been in classes with me before, that's not an uncommon thing for me to do. I think it's important that we explore this idea all the way around. The idol of theology and the idol of our own rightness. In Genesis chapter 3, you don't have to turn there, Eve, I mean you can turn there, I'm not going to tell you not to read the Bible, but we're not going to be turning there collectively. In Genesis chapter 3, Eve finds herself at the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And coiled around it is Satan, seducing humanity into rebellion. And Satan begins with an innocuous question, something that doesn't seem that bad. Do you remember what he, ask, what he asks? Did God really say that if you eat this fruit, you'll die? And do you remember her response carefully? Because she not only said that if we eat it, we will die, but even if we touch it, we'll die. We went back through and we examined the story upon the initial command. Did anywhere in God's initial command it say that she couldn't touch the fruit? No. That was something she added to God's word. And as soon as she started speaking as if she was God, Satan knew he had her. Because only one person can speak with the authority of God. And that's God himself. Whenever man tries to speak as God, we always fall. But we all understand why Eve did what she did, right? And like full fairness, if the story wasn't in the Bible, I mean, I would kind of relate. There are so many parts of my Christian walk where I do exactly what she did. To say like, okay, God says don't do this, so I'm going to draw a line over here just to ensure that I never get there. Even that's not wrong. But the moment it becomes wrong is when God says, this right here is wrong. I'm going to draw my personal line here, and over time we start saying, God said this. But God never did. Don't eat. Don't touch. We have to be careful as a Christian body that we avoid that trap. A pious trap, a noble trap. And one that's not wrong for us to do personally. But one that if we start speaking God's word into it, we have a problem. How many of you ever heard of the phrase, the slippery slope? It's a slippery slope. I hope that just there's not a lot of people raising their hand, and that this is actually a phrase that many of you have heard, because otherwise this is about to get real awkward, because I'm going to say something y'all don't know. Um, so, slippery slope kind of goes like this. 
if we start with A, then it'll lead to B, and if it leads to B, then it'll lead to C, and if it leads to C, then it'll lead to D, and that's where God's wrong. That's where God says is wrong. So, to be safe, don't start at A. The slippery slope. In preparation for class, I wanted to find an example of a slippery slope. And all of them made me feel really uncomfortable to talk about right now. I, I, we'll come back to those at the end. I want some time to be able to flesh out what I want to say before we jump into that. The slippery slope is not actually a biblical principle, but it's a human one. And it may seem safe to create rules at A so we avoid C. Might seem like a good idea, but God is actually universally against it from the beginning of time. Literally the first sin of humanity starts by humanity falling into the slippery slope. Ironically, the idea of the slippery slope is in and of itself a slippery slope. I thought that was fun. In Revelation chapter 21, there's a verse that's often used in every lads to leaders debate I was ever a part of. For those of you who don't know what lads to leaders is, a whole bunch of high school kids are conned into doing a whole bunch of things in front of a large crowd of people and then judged on them. Um, it's terrifying and traumatizing for all involved, but it does teach you a lot about the Bible. But in every debate, on any subject, every kid goes to the end of Revelation, Revelation chapter 22, when God says, do not add or take away to the words of these prophecies. For if you do, you will add and take away the blessings or curses of this, this book. And both sides, without fail, use that verse. No matter what you're arguing, that's like the go-to. But here's what that verse is actually saying. And as we'll see, many verses like it. Now follow me, because this is going to be a little dicey. Prohibiting that which God permits is just as wrong as permitting what God has prohibited. Prohibiting that which God permits is just as wrong as permitting that which is prohibited. If God says nothing about this being wrong, and we say God says that's wrong, that's wrong. We've messed up. And likewise, I think we could all agree that if I come up here and I'm like, hey guys, murder. God actually doesn't have a problem with that. Feel free. You'd all look at me like, no, you can't, God said that's wrong. You can't tell me it's okay. Both sides of that are true. We have to be very careful then when we speak on behalf of God. Otherwise, we're going to find ourselves in the idol of theology. Really wrestled with how I wanted to talk about this idol. Really wrestled how I wanted to convey some of these thoughts, because they're kind of complex. I thought the easiest way to do it was go to Jesus and see him do it in action and dissect what he did and what we can learn from it. Mark chapter 7. If you're following along, we flipped the page on the digital. I don't know if we flipped the page on the actual one. We did. Cool. We flipped the page. Mark chapter 7, Jesus finds himself in a confrontation with the Pharisees. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, were, res were responsible for not, up not only upholding the Torah, which is the laws of God, but also what they called the tradition of the elders, the new Torah, which is the collective wisdom of every rabbi that had lived before. They had then these two major documents. Ironically, the law was really, really long. What was longer 
is books like the Sanhedrin, which was all the collection of the traditions and laws of the Jews. And they had to memorize both and uphold them all. But along the way, they begin to blur what was actually God and what was actually man. Until this event occurs. Someone read for me Mark 7, 1 through 8, please. Powerful passage here and one that has kept me up many a night in my ministry. I'll tell you why in just a moment. This quotation, by the way, that Jesus quoted was from Isaiah. Ironically, a condemnation against the religious leaders. All the way back in the Old Testament, I guess nothing really changed. Six hundred and fifteen. The Torah became originally God prioritized. In fact, I would invite you to do this next time you read the Old Testament. It's kind of fun. God gave very few times in the law where he said these are commands of God. Most of the time he used two other words. Principles or statutes. Some translations say ordinances or statutes. Those were not commands of God. Those were, in fact, rules applied by the judges that Moses appointed or Moses himself on rulings. You learned that at the end of Leviticus. There was only a handful of commands to Dave's point. One of them, the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God, fire, heart, soul, my, heart, soul, and strength. Jesus added mind. And the second one, also love your neighbor. Those are both parts of the command, as are the Ten Commandments. But by this time, to Dave's point, there were so many, not only the, the ordinances and statutes that became law, but also all the other stuff that was nowhere in the Bible, including the washing of cups and the washing of hands before they eat. There is no law in the Torah that commands the washing of hands or the washing of cups. It does, however, say that a person needs to be, I'm going to quote this, a person needs not be defiled in the community of believers during times of worship or eating. That's what the Bible says. What does that mean? Don't come, up, Jesus, or Paul actually requotes this idea in the New Testament when he says, if you come together in worship and you have a problem with a brother, go to the brother and figure it out. If you're carrying a sin, go to God before you worship. Clear yourself of it. That's what the Bible's saying. But that was the command. Command C, do not enter with a defiled spirit before God and others. Somehow along the way it became... God commands, wash thy hands before thy eateth. And we've come so far from the original command that they were condemning people all the way back there. 
Really, it's no different than what Eve did in the garden. Do not eat. Do not touch. And they found themselves in this idol of theology. One thing that's very fascinating to me is what Jesus, how Jesus condemned it. Because he didn't just condemn it, right? He wasn't just like, hey, that's, stop. What he said actually was, you have let go of the commands of God to hold on to the traditions of man. You see what Jesus is doing there? He's making them contradictory forces. You can't have both. You either have the commands of God or you have the commands of man. There isn't a both option, which makes sense. Because what does Jesus claim in both the Old Testament and the New Testament? That he is God and God alone. He is the only one who can author the words of life. And he is the only one who has the authority to give commandments. Therefore, anybody, including us, who creates a commandment in the name of God is necessarily breaking his. Meaning we've let go of his to hold on to ours. This is why it gets dicey for me, folks. Because as a minister, I have a lot of preferences. I have a lot of personal rules I follow. A lot of things that over time I have learned I can't mess around with, so I don't. I have a lot of personal code of conduct that I hold myself to. And what's really difficult in a position of power like mine, where I'm given a microphone and the authority to speak God, is to make sure with discipline and constant vigilance that the words coming out of my mouth aren't mine, but God's. And what I say God said, I freak out to make sure that every single thing I say God did. You may notice when I preach, like on Sunday, 72 slides of Bible verses that were going behind me. Why? Because I was petrified that I was going to misstep and speak a human rule or idea instead of God's. However, I've learned that over time how easy it is to be flippant with that. We don't mean to, but we do. And how easy it is for us to start creating rules in the name of God thinking we're doing him a service by making it easier or keeping people safe. But in actuality, we're doing the exact opposite of what God's law commands. We're not going to do the second example for time's sake, but if you have time and you'd like to, there is another story given here. We're going to skip to point G, if you're following along in your notes. In both stories, we see that the creating laws God never did and holding people to them, this is Eve at the Garden of Eden all over again. It's the same story over and over and over and over again. Now, this is where we get a little dicey. This is where I'm going to start stepping on toes, including my own. So prepare yourselves, as I'll prepare myself. If we do not spend constant effort going back to the word of God, then we're going to find ourselves accidentally doing it. There was an old lady uh, at a church I used to work out down in Antioch, Tennessee. Loved that congregation. I left when I graduated. I worked there when I was in college. And this woman one time came up to me furious. She came up after a sermon, and she started telling me that I was speaking all sorts of craziness, and she quoted a human proverb. And she goes, that's what the Lord said. And I went, Darren, our uh, full-time preacher there, was standing beside me, 
And he leans over and goes, do you want to tell her or do you want me to? And I'm like, I'm going to let you take this one, Darren. And I just walked away and he took care of it. But that woman was so convinced that this rule she had always held to was in the Bible that she was willing to condemn me for it before ever having double-checked to make sure. She had become solidified in her theology at the detriment of God's word. This, this is our problem so frequently. And by the way, like, it's not just us, right? Like 21st Century Church of Christ, not just our problem. Literally Eve, first person on earth at the Garden of Eden, also struggled with this thing. So, yes, we do struggle with this as a church. But no, we're not alone. Literally all of humanity of all time has also struggled with this thing. Paul says this in Colossians chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. I'm actually going to have someone else read. So who wants to read that for me? Do not get caught up in this trap. People walk around believing that this is good. The appearance of wisdom, he says. One thing that's always cracked me up is studying church history. I love, there's this period, and it's about starting in like the 7th century, and it runs to like the 9th century, right? We get the desert mystics. Those dudes were fun. Because these guys, like, decided to swear off human society, and, like, go in caves and live alone with nothing but God. And there are some cool stories that come from there, some weird white writings that come from some of them, but some really But they became known. Later, we would actually see the same people, that school of thought, become the monks that live in, like, monasteries. It's the same group of people just evolved. They believed that the harsh treatment of the body made you more holy. The more rules you had for yourself, the more righteous you must be. That was their thought. I started reading the scriptures, and I'm like, because in college, I wanted to be a desert mystic. I was like, oh, this is before Madison. I got too, too serious. I was like, dear, I hope you like, you know, cacti, because that's where we're going to be. Because I love the idea, right, of all the discipline, taking away all the pleasures of life, and making sure that none of that, and just finding self-joy and all of that weirdness, that's not actually biblical. In fact, God frequently says that the more rules you have, probably the less righteous you are i.e. the Pharisees, who had 1,490 of them, and were the one group of people that Jesus frequently command, condemned. Paul here is saying the same thing. Don't get caught in the trap. Now, I've gone on long enough. I just really wanted to establish this baseline to make sure that we all have it kind of down pat. The slippery slope image is not a correct one to use. Now, I want to also reiterate, is it okay to have personal rules? Yes. Is it okay to hold yourself to certain standards? Yes. Madison and I have talked a lot about this. I have an addictive personality. There was a time in college I really struggled with some stuff, and I, like, some substance abuse, and I was bad about that for a little bit, right? So guess what? I'm probably not going to touch again in my life. Why? Because I know that my body reacts weirdly to Percocet. I am not messing with that stuff ever again. But, Let's say Madison gets a knee surgery, and they give her the same prescription pills that I struggled with. Do I have the right to tell her not to? No. 
It's okay to have personal codes of conduct. All of us do because all of us are different people, right? All of us have different struggles. That's okay. But when those personal codes of conduct outstep what God's code of conduct is, and we start creating rules outside of it for him, we've given up, let go of God's law to hold on to our own. Now, I would like us to challenge the slippery slope model with another metaphor, because there is nothing preachers like more than metaphors. So, basketball. Let's imagine a basketball court for a moment. Angie Sater just perked up, like, super hardcore. Okay. <laughs> I had lost her. I got her back with basketball. Now, now you're super zoned in. <laughs> so there's a basketball court, right? Let's say that I'm a head coach of a basketball team, and by George, they cannot keep the basketball in play. They keep throwing it out of bounds. Constantly, they're struggling with turnovers. So I, as a coach, say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm sick of them breaking this rule. So from here on out, we're going to draw a new out of bounds. It's going to be foul line to foul line. Narrow and short. You are not allowed to play basketball outside of foul line to foul line under any circumstance because we don't want you going out of bounds. Would my basketball team win a single game all season? No. Why? Because we're not playing within the space we were given. We didn't have freedom to do what we could do. We sacrificed a lot in it. Not only is the slippery slope image damaging, because it causes us to divide, fight, and often force disunity upon people we disagree with our personal codes of conduct with. It divides the unity of the church. How many churches have been fractured over non-biblical issues because I believe that this is right, you believe that that is right, and we can't come to an agreement despite the fact that the Bible it's not on either of our sides. In that regard, we're doing more of the basketball analogy than we are the slippery slope. We're sacrificing so much of what the kingdom of God could be because we're holding on to our own commands. We've recreated the out-of-bounds line and have recreated what it is to have a turnover. And in so doing, we've sacrificed every chance we have of winning. So, in, I would like to offer a couple of examples. We're not going to go through them right now because I do not have that much courage. But I am going to pitch them to you. And I'm going to have you think about them. I went through every church I've been at. And I have found every major issue that's divided them. Except for this one. Y'all are perfect. We've never had a problem. But before this one, I went through every single church. And here's a list I found. How many of these areas do we overstep what God has definitively said for what we believe we should do? That's the question. How many of these have the idol of theology creeped in to your own personal brain? This is, by the way, not one of those vulnerable questions. This is all rhetorical. Just think about this one on your own. Ready? I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Worship format. Things like, how many songs? <laughs> Always two. But see, this is like, but then more seriously, like what about things like instrumental music? What about women's role? What about drinking of alcohol or eating of desserts? What about attire? What is modest and immodest? What about jewelry? What about, and the list goes on. All of these issues, if we're not careful, 
I have seen be microcosms of this, where we're too terrified that we're going to go here, that we make the rule here, and we start holding everyone else to it. And in so doing, we're damaging God's word. Literally, to quote Jesus, this is not bishop. We are letting go of God's word to hold on to my word. Because you can't have both. The idol of theology will stop us from understanding scripture. If we're constantly too busy talking over God as he's trying to talk to us in the spirit. Okay. 19 minutes for the next one. Before we do that, any thoughts, questions, or concerns you have about that? I was, before we do that, I was told last week in an example that I thought was hilarious. I was like, man, I stopped multiple times for people to ask questions, and no one did. Am I doing something wrong? And they were like, Bishop, have you ever been in a rear-end accident? I was like, no. It's like you're going down the highway, someone in front of you stops, so you slam on the brakes, and next thing you know, you're getting hit into the next thing. I'm like, yeah, and he goes, that's kind of what it's like to stop in the middle of these classes. So, I get it. I will slow down. Does anyone have any questions, comments, or concerns? We're going to get there. <laughs> Sorry. For those of you who are in my journey group, I'm so sorry. I know that's like a triggering phrase. We'll get there eventually, but we will. Um, let me say this, though. One of the reasons it's so attractive is because we're terrified of trust. In fact, I would say that all three of these idols have the same thing. Last week we talked about this, that uh, the reason we want to argue and win every fight using Scripture, and we want Scripture to be our basis, is because we can, what we think, we can understand the words on the page. We want to build our trust on something we think we can do. Same with theology. We want to make sure we don't do anything wrong because at the end of the day, we're terrified to trust in the idea of grace, right? Grace says you don't deserve it and you're going to get it anyway. Well, we hate that. So the idol of theology becomes, I'm going to ensure that I regiment every part of my life and know exactly where to not go so that I can make my way into heaven is a broken model. But it's one that keeps drawing us back because we want to be in control of our own salvation. But we're not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The middle balance there. Ironically, Charlie, 
you have hinged us directly into our final idol, which is exactly that point. Ironically, if you're following along in my notes, like that's the next thing I talk about, because specifically that. There are two major ways we divide in the church, right? We divide over our personal codes of conduct, or we divide over disagreements on interpretation of Scripture. Which, by the way, I did not think happened. When I was young and naive and dumb, I believed everyone read the Bible like I did. thought everyone interpreted the Bible like I did because, I mean, as a 14-year-old, I thought I was right. Man, if I was as right on my theology as I thought I was when I was a teenager, I would be the greatest theologian of all time. When I got to college, I learned that there's a lot of smart people who disagree over big things. Professors in college with doctorates in Bible who have been ministers their whole life of big churches and have made such an impact for the kingdom sat around and went, well, what about this? They both read, to your point, I read it, you read it, I come up with this means, they come up with this means, and then finding the balance of how to determine pro prohibited versus permitted, if that's necessary, or even where we're going to find the balance in between our two ideas is very challenging. So let's dive into that. The idol of rightness is the third idol. To remind us of the story of Eve, Eve, after the narrative of Satan, sat there for a second. Satan stopped talking, which, by the way, I always found interesting. This is another little tidbit, nothing to do with our sermon, just, or our class, but just like fun little thing to think about, right? Once Satan realized he had Eve, he did not say another word. Once she had determined, once he realized that she was speaking for God and had turned her attention away from God, he just walked away at that point. He had gotten her. Often Satan is the scariest when he's silent. Just a little tidbit to think about there. Nothing to do with this. I just found that when I was reading this week, and I was like, man, that is challenging. Uh, but the idol of rightness, Eve then looked at the fruit on the tree, and she was lured by it, right? It says that she saw it was good for food. But then it said and for making someone wise. That was the turning point. She grabbed it, she ate it, humanity is in a pickle, and God's creation project is undone. For a time being. This idea of rightness, the idea of quote-unquote wisdom, I'm going to call it perceived wisdom, because it's not actual wisdom, but it just looks like it. The idea of being right. I was taught from this young, in our school system, and by the society I live in, that I have to win in everything, right? Win in business, win in politics, win in insert thing here. It's always a fight, because there is someone who's right, and there is someone who's wrong, and that's often determined on the debating floor, or over water coolers, or whoever can post the angriest meme on Facebook. Like, whatever it is, there is a winner and there is a loser, and it is our responsibility to fight it. This is why America has fallen so far behind the rest of the world in the fields of philosophy and in the field of theology. Because we stopped actually trying to grow and we started trying to argue better. That's one of the craziest things. I read a very broad very broad view of theology. I do not like reading American writers sometimes. Because most American writers are coming into the arena to say, I have an idea, and I'm right, and here's why all y'all have been wrong for a long time. And it's like, whoa, chill, man. I just want to hear your idea. That's why I like British writers a lot. Why? Because 
they still have a lot of philosophy. I have an idea I'd like to explore. Let's, let's look at it. But if we're taught to win, to fight, and that there always has to be a right and a wrong and a winner and a loser in all things, then it's no surprise that we bring that into the church and we do it about God's word. But the Bible's pretty clear on this. I'm going to say this. We're going to come back to it at the end, and you could tell me if I proved it right, I guess, or if you still disagree, that being right about doctrine and the Bible and scripture and beliefs is far less important to God than being righteous in your actions to people. And the pursuit of rightness will never give you righteousness. The pursuit of rightness will never bring you righteousness. If you start with trying to get it all right and be a winner, you've missed it. Because it's not about being right. It's about living righteously. Now, also want to over a caveat, does that mean that we shouldn't try to continue to learn and grow and find right answers? No. That's not what I'm saying. We'll come back to that. Clearly, I'm teaching a whole class on how to read the Bible to get more out of it. I am not saying here on the, the second class, don't come back. It doesn't really matter. Of course it matters. But if your priority is finding all the right answers to Jason's question earlier, all we're trying to do is guarantee our own salvation. We believe that if I can get everything right, then somehow, like, I'm going to get to heaven. Peter's going to be at the gates. He's going to be like, Bishop, here's your questionnaire. Did you pass? If I get my theology right, then I can sneak on in. If I get my theology wrong, I'm out forever. It's never what God says. In fact, we're going to explore what God says here in just a moment. I would like to begin this concept in a rather strange place in first, or excuse me, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. This is point B, if you are following along at home. Oh, and um, podcast listeners, forgot to tell you this at the beginning. On the little link where you pressed on this podcast, go underneath it, there will be a little button you can press, and it will load up what we're reading right now so you can follow along. Probably should have said that at the beginning, Hopefully you found out. If not, I'll be better next week. That's on me, guys. Okay, so 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 to 21 says what? Who wants to read that for me? Okay, these passages uh, teaches us two very important truths. First thing we learn from it is this. There is no understanding of Scripture outside of the Holy Spirit. Say that again. There is no understanding of Scripture outside of the Holy Spirit. I fancy myself a pseudo-smart guy. I know nothing about the, the Bible unless God teaches it to me. The whole concept is foreign. Think about it like this. Every single thing Jesus ever commands me to do, turn the other cheek, not resisting an evildoer, giving to the poor without expectation of return, radical generosity, caring, love, compassion, being willing to give my life for the least of these, even people I don't even know. All of these things are intrinsically foreign to my existence. I am a selfish man. I want the money. I don't want you to have my money. I worked for that money. You didn't. I want to protect my face. I do not want to turn my other cheek because I like my face. You will make it worse if you slap me twice. That's more the reason why I don't want that, and it hurts. And I am intrinsically a selfish person. Everything God tells me, then, is going to be contrary to my human nature. 
I cannot understand it without him. Because I will fight it if I don't give in to him. So the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us all wisdom, Jesus says. And here, Peter kind of says the same thing. That means, this is the part that's hard for us to grasp sometimes, that one of the least trustworthy people to interpret the Bible is me. Because I'm coming at the Bible with all of my preconceived notions. Everything I've ever been told by any preacher of any sermon I've ever listened to, the church I grew up in, the traditions I was taught, I'm bringing all of that junk into the Bible with me. And if the Holy Spirit's not there to start flicking those things away, then my Bible's going to look a whole lot like, and you could insert any number of things here. Can I get real intense for just a moment? Then we'll lighten up. Politics, tradition, and denomination, or in our case, non-denomination, are some of the biggest obstacles to scriptural interpretation. Because often what we'll find when we go to the Bible is what's most important to us comes out in the text. One of the biggest things that one of my favorite professors had us do was he had us all read a passage. And then he went down the line. What does it say to you? 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 And there was one kid. One kid out of all of us. His name was Nathan. I'm pretty sure he was a saint. Well, he was a saint, but like, this guy was special. We all had different things that this is obviously saying that this is, or, or this part of theology, or this philosophy, or this political view, or whatever, is right, wrong, whatever. And then it gets to him, and he goes, I think what this is saying is, like, that Jesus is willing to overlook a multitude of things that I've done wrong. And the professor pointed at each one of us individually and goes, all of you came at this text with the wrong thing in mind. You all came with different biases, and they came out when you read that text. That kid... Ironically, one of the youngest in the class, actually he came to college like two years early, that kid came at it with innocence, and the Holy Spirit told him what was actually there. One of the most challenging things I've ever done, because I realized I come to the Bible with so many biases every single time I read it. If I'm not careful, I can silence the Holy Spirit, because there is no understanding without him. Only through him can I find answers. The second truth is as follows. That no person at any time ever has managed the ability to perfectly understand Scripture. There's a passage earlier in 1 Peter, we're not going to read right now because we are running very tight on time, um, that you can read at your own leisure. Even the prophets didn't understand what they were writing. That's one of my favorite things to read when you're reading the prophets. They, read the, they give you this crazy vision or these truths that are super deep. And then someone goes, what do they mean? And he goes, they trouble me too. I have no idea. I'm trying to figure it out. If the Holy Spirit moved people like Daniel, which I have some examples there. If they moved people like Daniel to give prophecies that even Daniel didn't know. How can I expect to perfectly get them down? Paul does say that Christ gives us a lot of those answers, and he does. But have you ever tried to read the book of Romans all the way through? Because even with Christ, the truth sometimes eludes us. It's complex, it's difficult, and we'll never fully get it right. Stopping for a moment. I am not suggesting that we shouldn't try to have a good theology that we build and pursue wisdom. What I'm saying is that if all we're trying to approach Scripture with is to be perfectly right, then we've missed the point of Scripture. In fact, it may actually stop us from learning what God wants from us. Psalm 25, verse 9, David writes, 
He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. We are only open to hearing the Spirit if we're actually there to learn it. We come in with pride and arrogance. I know all this. I'm right. Then the Holy Spirit will go, oh, I guess you don't need me then. He'll walk right along and we'll continue to read the biases into the text. Humility is actually one of the most important parts of biblical learning. Coming at the Bible with an open mind and this phrase always on the forefront of your brain. Ready? The most paradigm-shifting view that you can bring into the text. I could be wrong. When you come to the text with that in mind, the Holy Spirit teaches us again and again and again. Sometimes he's going to teach the same truths over and over again. But keep coming back. Listen to what he's trying to say in humility. Paul says that he, even he, doesn't run aimlessly, fight like he's beating the air. No, he disciplines himself. Why? So that he doesn't find disqualification. He's coming at it with humility to learn from the Spirit. Yes. I, I did, Dave. <laughs> no, it's okay. Say it again for those people who couldn't hear. Are you reading to impress or express? Yep. It's that, honestly, that's so important for all of us. Are you there for the right reasons? The idol of rightness is so tantalizing, and it leads to such arguments and pride in the church. But the minute we're willing to sit in humility with the Holy Spirit, with the understanding that we're actually there to learn, not just to continue to get more right, but to actually discover, we'll find something impressive and amazing. I uh, had a rule growing up, and I was not taught this by my people at church. I was taught this by the greatest theologian I've ever known, which is my mother. One time I was going to go over to a friend's church, I was so nervous. I was like, what if they, you know, what if they sneak me in? What if I get, like, taken away and, like, ah, like, all of a sudden I'm Baptist? Ah! My, parent, my mom laughed and goes, well, are you sure we're right? I was like, yeah, of course I do. And she goes, are you sure that we're right? I got there and I had a lot of questions when I came out. Good questions. Forced me to learn, forced me to grow. Because I went in with the expectation that I'm going to be here to learn. Did I agree with everything? No. Did I learn? Yes. Go into every conversation, every Bible study with the expectation that you could be wrong. And here's one of the biggest things, guys. If Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and we believe him, that he is the truth, then why are we afraid of questions or study? He is the answers to the questions we're exploring. So we need to go to him for it. I have gone long. I did not get through my outline. I am learning shorter. Next week I'll be better. We didn't even get to our hard questions. We'll get to those next week. But I would like to end here. We'll, uh, 
Yeah, we'll end here. If I could speak all the languages of earth and angels but didn't love, I would be as a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if, this is important, if I understood all of God's plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had faith that I could move mountains, but I didn't love others, I would be nothing. It's not about being right. It's about being righteous. Caring and valuing others above yourself. The idol of uh, rightness is enough to divide the church, and I've watched it happen multiple times, and I will see it again. You will too. Because at some point, all of us are tempted to leave righteousness in the name of rightness. It doesn't matter if you're right. It matters if you're living right with God. Defined as living and imitating Jesus in every way he lived and tried to imitate the Father. If you are following along at home on the big outline, go to page two. If you're not... Go to the top of your front page, and we're going to end tonight with our prayer. This prayer comes from it in a book that was written in the 11th century, but it's actually dated back to the 4th century. We'll pray this, and we will depart henceforth. Father, grant me strength. Be off Satan from this floor and from these four walls, for there is no place for you in here. There is nothing for you to do here. This is the place for Peter and Paul and the Holy Gospel. And this is where I mean to sleep now that my worship is done. In the name of the Father and of the Holy Spirit. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, send your spirit. Instill the wisdom of your Holy Spirit into my heart. Protect my soul and body. Every limb in my body, every fiber of my being from all possible harm and all traps the devil may set for me and every temptation to sin. Teach me to give you thanks, O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, everybody. Thank you, guys. I'll see you next week. For those of you on the podcast, thank you so much for tuning in. I'll see you next week.